you have your Bible, grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin reading this morning. We've been working verse by verse for a number of months through the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, I want to just begin by reading our text that we're going to be looking at. So verse 46, Jesus says this as he ends the Sermon on the Plain. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We find in these verses our Lord Jesus offering to us instruction on how we as a believer are to build our lives, what the foundation is to look like as we construct the house of our lives, and what's going to enable that house to withstand the storms of life. I think it's safe to say that the majority, if not all of us in this room, understand the power of water. Every single year we uh, read stories, we hear reports, we watch reporters on the television or online who are in a flooding situation, whether it's a hurricane over on the coast or it's some sort of flood in the mountains. It, it doesn't matter what it is. Every single year we see the power that water has to bring destruction to people's lives. In fact, just a few weeks ago, a slow moving weather system moved through the St. Louis and eastern Kentucky areas, and both of those areas uh, experienced incredible flooding. In fact, both have been described as a one in a thousand year type of rain event, which resulted in the deaths of nearly 40 people and millions, if not billions of dollars in destruction. So we've watched those videos from especially eastern Kentucky where houses there on the edge of streams and rivers were picked up and moved down the river because of the flooding. Storm waters, as we know, bring devastation to everything in their path. I mean, water's destructive no matter what it is. Even if it's in your house, you get a little leak in a valve, and all of a sudden you don't have just a small problem, you've got a big problem. I had some plumbing issues this past week. I had a little valve underneath the kitchen sink that had been dripping just a little bit here and there over the last few weeks, and so I had a pan underneath it. It's one of those deals where I'll, I'll, I'll catch that later, right? I'm going to do it later. So I looked under there that one morning. It had been a few days, and I saw that that pan was pretty full of water. So I pulled the pan out, and I decided, let me just tinker with that screw a little bit more and see if I can tighten it and get it to work. Well, you're laughing because you know what happened next. It's no longer a little drip. Now it's a stream of water coming out of it. And so I'm thinking, man, i got to do something here, right? And so I tinkered with it some more. I got it to slow down a little bit, and it's more than I could handle because I knew it wouldn't last even a few hours. And so I rigged up a system. I got the funnel that I used to put fuel in my lawnmowers, and I connected it to the hose that I used to get oil out of my lawnmower. And I put those two together so I could rig a system to get the water to flow down into a bigger bowl that could fit underneath that little valve. And then I got on the phone and tried to find a plumber. And you know what I got? Nothing. Nobody's available. No one would answer. And so thankfully, uh, Kyle in our church told me about a system, a, a way that you can connect stuff. It's PEX. I don't have the tools. And I got it to work. 
I went to turn the water on later after I fixed the problem. You know what else I did? I created another problem. I broke the handle off on the, the uh, shutoff valve in the garage. And so then I had to get a person to come and fix that. It's just water can be destructive in our lives. The same is true of the storms of life. Just the natural storms that come, come our way. You know, many people get swept away in torrents by a medical diagnosis. You go to the doctor and you get a bad report. Others are swept away by the death of a loved one or the loss of a job. Others are wrecked by marital strife, substance abuse, and financial loss. Storms of life often slam against our lives unexpectedly, unannounced. They don't call you up and say, hey, next week at 11 uh, on Wednesday, the storm is going to smack against your life. No, it doesn't happen that way. It just unexpectedly slams against you. And then there are other times the storms may be more self-inflicted. They're the result of poor choices. One thing of which we can all be sure is that their presence is a reality that we need to recognize. The constant presence of storms slamming against us, we need to recognize. And so we need to prepare for them, and we should allow them at the same time to grow us in our walk with Jesus, grow us in our discipleship. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, right now, you're, and you're on track, you're reading through the book of Job. I don't know another person in all of history, especially the history of the Bible, who had more storms slam up against his life than the man that's called Job. Job, the Bible tells us, was a man who was upright and righteous. He's a man that feared God and walked with God. And in one day, this man, from ancient times, lost his cattle, he lost his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and all of his ten children in one day. Not long after that, on another day, Job was struck with a terrible disease that left him covered in some sort of loathsome skin disease from the head of his, the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. His life had been so devastated that that loving wife that he had been married to for years looked at him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? Thank you for that blessing, dear woman. At the beginning of his story, we discover that God allowed these storms into Job's life to show his power to Satan, to show his sovereignty to the enemy. The enemy was strutting around over the earth as if he were Lord. And so Job had done nothing to deserve these. He had done nothing to cause these storms in his life. And yet God brought these upon him. The trials he endured were sent to teach Satan that God does rule supremely. And yet he's never learned that lesson. They were also sent so that you and I and others who know the story of Job could also look and see that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God does preserve his people through the hardest of times. And at the end of the story, we find out that Job too had some things to learn. Job too had some discipleship to grow in. This righteous and upright man was not perfect. There's still room for growth in his life, his understanding of who God is. Likewise, today, there's room for growth in our walk with the Lord. You see, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, then you've been invited to an ever-increasing, ever-growing intimacy with the Lord. And this relationship is one of discipleship. It's how we learn to walk closer and grow closer to the Lord. Today, as we finish Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, 
We're going to see him teaching on this subject. And so I've titled the message, The Path of Discipleship. What does this path look like? We've been working through the chapter, uh, chapter 6 for a number of weeks now. Uh, what have we learned so far? Well, we've seen that Jesus is greater and the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That, that holy day, that sixth day of rest, was not just so that people could rest and so people could go to worship. It was picturing what Jesus is for us, that he is our rest. He is the repose that's foreshadowed in that Sabbath day. We've also discovered that love compels the Lord to seek and heal broken people because he is our life giver. We've seen that God desires to heal the brokenness in people. And in that, Jesus appointed 12 men to follow through in what he had began to establish in the church. They would be the men who would perform great signs and do great preaching and, and establish the church's doctrine long after Jesus had ascended back to the Father. So we saw there in chapter 6 how Jesus appoints his disciples up on the mountain. Then they come down to this level plain. And Jesus at this point in the, point in the story gives this, this opportunity as an object lesson for them. They come on this level plain and all these people gather. Disciples and people who are not disciples. And the apostles are there. And Jesus teaches them how important it is to be with the common people. To be with people. Goes on to describe their profile, their perspective, and the practice of what a disciple is and how they're to do ministry. Then, last time we were together looking at this text two Sundays ago, we saw that he described the disposition of a disciple. You see, believers have a moral authority. They have a responsibility to point out and correct sin, both in the lives of others as well as in the culture. And so Jesus said those words that are so often mis quoted, misused in today's culture that we're, they say, judge not lest you be judged, as if we're to never make a judgment on anything. And I told you that we make a judgment on everything. You go to the coffee stand and you get that cup of brew and you look at it and you take that first sip and you're making a judgment. It's good or it's bad. Judgment is a part of life. It's the issue is, will we be judgmental? Will we not look at ourselves? Will we forsake the plague or the plank that's in our own eye while trying to grab the speck in someone else's? So we have to be introspective even as we hold one another accountable and call one another to discipleship. Jesus offers a final lesson here in this Sermon on the Plain on discipleship. He offers a description of this path of discipleship. He portrays it as one of obedience, and we discover here that there's no middle ground when it comes to obedience. And Jesus doesn't call us to, well, if you want to follow me, or if you want to do what I've said, then do it. But if you don't, no big deal, you just do you. That's not what Jesus lays out at all. In fact, what he's teaching us here is that one who calls himself a disciple is either going to obey the word, or that person's going to disobey the word. What is the word of God? We believe as Christians that the word of God is... The Bible. 66 books written by many authors over 1,500 years, all are the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the very Word of God, authoritative and true. It's both a map navigating us through life as well as a light illuminating our path. I love King David's words on this. He says in Psalm 119, verse 1, Blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Then he asks the question in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. Then in verse 105, he says this, speaking of how the word of God is a, a lamp, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so for my passage this morning, what I want to do is just share with you three truths that illuminate our path as we seek to walk as a disciple. Truth the first truth I want you to see is this. Lordship necessitates obedience. Lordship necessitates obedience. It kind of just makes sense that if we're going to call Jesus Lord of our life, then we're going to follow what the Lord says. And so Jesus here asks a real probing question in verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The fact that he uses the term Lord twice intensifies the affirmation of this allegiance that's required in the disciple's life. The very title predisposes an allegiance. It predisposes uh, obedience in the person's life. But ironically, what we see here is that there apparently were people who called Jesus Lord and referred to Jesus as their Lord, but they chose not to obey him. Otherwise, you would never ask the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I tell you? It's like your kids, hey, I want you to do this, and when they don't do it, it's the same thing. You're the mom, you're the dad, you're the authority in their life, and they say they love you, and they uh, want to follow your leadership, and they trust you, and yet when they don't do what you've told them to do, it makes no sense. It's dangerous even. In fact, in a similar sermon, Jesus pointed out to the audience who was listening to him preach on the mountain there in Matthew chapter 7, he pointed out that to claim his lordship or, or, or appear religious was never enough. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, right? Why, why do you do this? In fact, I don't know you, and I would spit you out of my mouth. I don't know you as Lord. So it's, it's not that we call Jesus Lord. It's not that we act religious in our life. It's do we obey what he says? Lordship necessitates obedience. As a Christ follower, the habit and the practice of your life ought to be one of obedience to God's word. We want to be and we must be a people who not just say we believe the word of God, but we do the word of God because we believe the word of God. That ought to be the habit. That ought to be the practice of our lives. Now, I'm not in saying that. I'm not saying that there is some sort of, of perfectionism that comes about as a Christian. You will never get to the place of perfectly following, perfectly obeying God's word until you get to glory. There's always going to be a struggle in your life. There's always going to be a difficulty in your life, but you ought to make it the practice of your life to walk in obedience. And when you stray from that, there's confession, there's repentance, and there's restoration as you come back to the Lord. And so it's hypocritical what Jesus is saying here. It's hypocritical to call yourself a Christian and fail to do what Jesus says. Even worse, ongoing disobedience proves that a person does not love Jesus, which really reveals a false belief in Christ. Jesus goes to great extents in John 14 and 15 to talk about how if you love him, you'll obey what he says. And so the inference of that is this. If you don't do what Jesus says... You never loved him in the first place. So we love Jesus, therefore we follow Jesus. We love Jesus, therefore we obey Jesus. Obedience is that necessary ingredient of Christian discipleship. What is a disciple? We've been talking about this numerous times over this summer. What is a disciple? It's a follower. 
A disciple is simply one who follows a teacher, one who follows a master. And so as a Christian, I'm to be a disciple, meaning I'm to follow the master. I'm to follow Jesus. I'm to mimic him. I'm to look like him. I'm to think like him. I'm to act like him. I'm to speak like him. I'm to love others like him. I'm to do what Jesus does through my life. It's a necessary ingredient of discipleship. It, however, I don't want you to mistake what Jesus is saying here. It does not produce God's forgiveness and acceptance. Jesus is saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? But in reading that question and understanding the need for obedience, we don't take the next step or the wrong step and say, all right, I can earn my way into acceptance in Jesus by being obedient. Number one, you can never be obedient fully, which means you can never be justified in that. But at the same time, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Verse 10 would tell us that it's God who works in us. So we're not being obedient to earn our way, earn our acceptance. We're being obedient because God has been gracious to us. And the natural outflow of that is I now want to follow Jesus because he's changed my want to's. Before I knew Jesus, I didn't want to follow him. I wanted to follow me, Right? If you were in a small group just a few minutes ago, we were there in 2 Kings chapter 17, and we're seeing the destruction of Israel and Judah. Why were they being removed from the promised land? It's because their want-tos were not in line with God's want-tos. They were saying, I want to do what I want to do, and God was saying, this is what you need to do because it's what's best for you. And because they were disobedient and rebellious, God brought judgment upon their lives. James, the half-brother of Jesus, magnifies this concept there in James chapter 1, verse 22. As he calls on believers, he says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving themselves. We're to be a doer of what God says, not so that we earn our way, but because we want to be faithful to the God has changed our life. It's radiating, radiating from a place of faith. This is what Jesus is going on to say in verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I'm going to show you what that man's life is like. See, the person who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is one who has first come to him in faith and repentance of sin. Faith is then followed up with and proven by doing what Jesus has said. So our faith to be true For our faith to be true, our obedience must be real. That's what James is saying. We follow Jesus, we do what Jesus says because we have first first come into relationship with the Lord. Now, going back to the storms of life. Those storms are slamming against us. They can arise unexpectedly. They come unannounced. They come from outside sources. And yet they can also, think about this, come as a result of our own poor choices. The areas in our life where we've chosen to disregard the parameters and the boundaries that God has set for our own good, for our own protections, and in our human wisdom think that we know better, and so we transgress what God says, which brings the flood and the storm. Jesus here is offering no middle ground for obedience. The structures of our lives will stand or fall in accordance with our commitment to his word. This is true both of natural and self-inflicted storms, which leads us to a second truth illuminating our path. Here's what I want you to see. Lordship is necessary 
or lordship necessitates obedience. Secondly, obedience to God's word safeguards one's life. Obedience to God's word safeguards one's life. The action Jesus here is speaking of in verse 47, notice what tense it's in. He says, the one who comes, and the one who hears, and the one who does. What tense is that? Any English professors in the room this morning? Me neither, as you guys know. I'm not a grammatical scholar. It's in the present tense, though. The one who comes, the one who hears, the one who does. It's speaking of ongoing action. So the person who comes and keeps on coming, the person who hears and keeps on hearing, the person who does and keeps on doing the word, that man is like one who built his house on a firm bedrock. Verse 48 goes on to declare that that man's house is stable and it's grounded when the storms of life slam against it. When the storms bring a flood of rushing water against it, it does not move. Why? Because it's firmly grounded on the Word of God. Something that's immovable, something that's unchangeable, something that's solid. He says, when a flood arose and a stream broke out. What, what else is he saying here to us? When a flood arose and a stream broke out. What does that mean? It's going to happen. When? He doesn't say if or it might. We hope it doesn't. He says when. When a flood arose and a stream broke out. That ought to encourage you today. It ought to encourage you that every time a storm hits your life, it's not because you necessarily did something bad. It's just a natural part of living in a fallen world. It's just a natural part of what it means to live post-Eden. When we have the curse of God upon our sinfulness and the rebellion of humanity and the curse that's come upon creation. So we need to understand that bad things will happen on a daily basis. Storms are natural, common, and routine, a routine aspect of nature. Just like that, trials and difficulties are common and routine in our lives. I'm amazed by how forgetful we are as human beings. I mean, we've got all kinds of technology, and our brains can remember so much. But every summer, every winter, uh, you hear all these reports, you read all this stuff, and they're like, it's never been this way before. Yeah, it's hot every summer. It's August. It's supposed to be 100 degrees. I'm 44 for 45 summers. I don't really remember my first couple. But for 45 summers that I've been alive, it's always been hot. Okay? For 44 winters that I've experienced, it's always been cold. And when cold air hits moisture in the wintertime, there's this white stuff that falls from the sky. It's called snow. It happens all the time. It's routine, and yet we forget that. I'm poking that fun at our reporters these days, and sometimes us. But this is a, what it means to live in this world. Bad things happen. Storms come. That's the weather. But bad things happen in your life. Here, here's what happened this week, this past week. Jamie and I went to visit one of our senior adults who's had a real strong, horrible battle with a string of health issues for a month or so. We visited him in the hospital. While that's happening, one of our younger ladies in our church was diagnosed with cancer, a different kind of cancer. This now her second diagnosis with cancer. She'll be figuring out what that regiment will be like in the days ahead. Another family is heartbroken over poor choices being made by one of their family members. 
I know of marital strife in some. I know of ongoing uh, uh, conflict between divorced parents and the stress and the, the, the difficulty that comes in that environment. Some of these storms slamming into the lives of our brothers and sisters are natural. They're a part of living in a fallen world. Others are outside of their control. Maybe some are self-inflicted. But it's a fact of life. Jesus here in verse 48 is pointing out to us that obedient, the obedient disciple lays a foundation on the rock. And though his or her life is battered by the rains and the flood that are naturally going to come, it stands to the end. It doesn't matter how bad the storm is, how high the flood raises, rises, it's going to stand. And it stands because this disciple is chosen to build his or her life, not on what they believe or what they think or what someone else tells them. It's going to stand because it's built upon what God has said in his word. Disciples' life is not built on what culture believes, what culture proposes. Disciple understands that God has spoken for his or her good and blessing. So just as God graciously, graciously set the parameters of Adam and Eve there in Eden, he has graciously set the parameters for you and I and how we're to live our lives in this world. The things that will bring blessing to us, the things that are, will bring harm to us, those are laid out in his word. They're not something that you need to search through and think, where's the secret? Where's it at? No, it's plain. It's right there. Here's sin. Don't venture off into that. And if you'll keep from that, hey, it'll be good for you. But if you get off of that stuff, you better expect what comes with it. It's clear, God is not playing games with us. He's graciously and lovingly given us a word that tells us how to live our lives. It's a safeguard when we build our lives upon it. But I want you to understand something here. We talk about it being a safeguard. Jesus is not promising uh, in this verse uh, a life without difficulties and suffering. We all know that's not true, hopefully. Difficulties and suffering are part of what it means to live in this world, this fallen post-Eden world. So what Jesus is promising here is that the one who builds his or her life on the rock of his word, that individual will endure through those trials. The house will stand strong through the battering of the floodwaters. The disciple will not undermine, if the disciple won't undermine themselves by disobedience, then the house will stand. Again, Psalm 119, 105, God's word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Took the dog out last night, I think it was last night, to use the restroom before we go to bed. And there's a part of my yard that the water just, again, water is powerful. And so water comes down the side of my house and it's cutting out more and more of the, the well, I would say soil, but it's not really soil. It's just red clay and rocks. And so I'm getting more rocks that are showing. And I didn't take a flashlight and I'd forgotten that it's a little bit of a step down there. And so I stepped down in the darkness and kind of stumbled a little bit. I'm glad no one could see me stumble. It's a little bit embarrassing. God's word is the light to our past so that we see the pitfalls and the dangers and the destruction and we avoid those so we can remain safe. God has graciously given that to us. See, the only harm that can harm the life of a disciple is the self-infliction we bring to ourselves through disobedience. That brings us to a final truth. Lordship necessitates obedience Obedience to God's word strengthens one's life. Thirdly, disregarding God's word weakens one's life. As we've seen here, the faithful disciple comes. 
The faithful disciple hears. The faithful disciple does the word of God, lives the word of God. Now in verse 49, Jesus is presenting the faithless person who disregards God's word. And basically he's saying that this person never came to the Lord. Uh, notice this. I thought this was very interesting as I looked at it uh, this, this past week. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The man or the person who hears and does not do them. What's the difference there? If you go back up to 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. The difference is, in verse 49, the one who's disobeying, disobeying God's word is the person who never came to Jesus in the first place. There's no lordship there. There's no willingness to fall before the feet of Jesus in worship and service and a desire to be a follower and a disciple. He simply presented as one who heard but did not do simply because he refused to come to Jesus and set under his authority. Did you know the word of God is the authority over your life? You don't have the authority to live however you want. If you call Jesus Lord, you have, you have signed on the dotted line giving Jesus authority over your life. And what's that authority over you? It's this right here. What this book tells us where to do, how we're to live, is laid out in these 66 books and no other. God has spoken. God has given us words to live by. And these words bring life to those who obey them, but they bring destruction and weakness to those who refuse to obey. The house that type of person builds for himself is eroded away by disobedience. The storms of life will destroy. And the end of that fall, according to the end of this verse, is great. Don't we see that in America today? Now, now I want to make sure that we're driving this home individually in our lives and corporately and as a church. But think about our nation today. America was founded on what we would call a Judeo-Christian Ethic. That simply means that our founding fathers built our way of life, our understanding, our concept, our doctrine, if you will, our worldview was largely built on what the Bible says about living life. See, America's never been a perfect people. We're as flawed as flawed people are. But our history, though flawed, has traditionally known what is right and what is wrong. We have traditionally believed the Bible's teaching on the importance of marital fidelity. We have understood the, the, the importance of discipline in the home. We've understood the dangers of sexual immorality and substance abuse. We've recognized that one's identity comes from God, grounded in the fact that we've been made in His image and likeness. As a nation, we've largely affirmed Psalm 3312 that says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying, never will I say, that America is a theocracy. The only theocracy we want to be a part of is the one that's in the hereafter, in the new heavens and the earth, when Jesus sets his feet on this planet and he reigns supremely. That's the theocracy we want to be a part of. But by and large, America has understood traditionally that God is Lord and we want to follow him. And when we do blessings come, when we don't, destruction 
follows. That, that's our history. But today, American culture is very much different. Largely, we have rejected the truth that we were founded upon. Today, we hear things like this coming from organizations that should speak truth. The CDC and the WHO would tell us that human gender can no longer be understood as being binary. There's many different genders out there. Teacher unions, Supreme Court nominees, senators, U.S. congressmen, White House officials, state officials, you just go down the lines, local officials would refuse to use the word mother, replace it these days with birthing parent, a newly coined term. I've never, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had family members that had farms, and I like farming. I spent enough time on a farm to know that that's, That's not how you play that game. It takes two to tango, and it takes two of the opposite gender for that to take place. American culture has also rejected the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Rather than sexuality being reversed or reserved exclusively for a man and a woman in covenant marital relationship with one another, today it's casual, it's free, and even a source of identity. We use the label LGBTQ plus because it's ever expanding and someone may come along with something new and so we just want to be inclusive. And I'm not trying to be hyper-political. What I'm trying to do this morning is, is cast all of this that we see in our culture and say it's a, it's a destructive divergence from what God has laid out in His Word. And as Christians, we need, we must know what God's Word says so that we establish our homes and our families and our relationships and our church and be a voice that will call sin what it is and call truth what it is. We don't know that if we don't know the Word of God. And so these are just A few of many areas eroding away the stability of our nation because they're eroding away in our families and our homes. I believe today wholeheartedly our nation is in crisis on every level. I believe we're imploding. We're falling apart morally and socially, psychologically, spiritually, maritally, financially, militarily. As a nation, we're imploding on every level. And so we keep hearing about the increase in mental health concerns uh, across the board. It doesn't matter what age group, what, what ethnicity or gender. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks a person is from. We see these ongoing rises in these health concerns. Depression, drug abuse, suicide are like on epidemic levels these days. How is all of this happening? Why is all this happening? I believe it's happening because people, you and I even, refuse to come to Christ. We refuse to hear the word of God and go and do what it says. We refuse to apply it to our lives. How arrogant do you have to be to think that you can redefine the parameters God has set and think that there are no consequences? Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. So if we think that we can redefine what God has defined and there's no repercussions from that, we're fools. God didn't give parameters to Adam and Eve in the garden because he was holding out on them. He said, you can have all of this. It's for you, and it's good. (laughs) It's awesome. 
It's the best that you could ever imagine. But the serpent slid up there and said, hey, has God really said? He put a question in his mind. He put a question in his heart, and he began to think about that, and he began to say, hey, that tree that I'm being told not to eat from might actually be better than the one next to it. So I'm going to redefine what God has defined for me. I'm going to redefine morality and put my perspective on it. I'm going to redefine sexuality and put my perspective on it. I'm going to redefine what it means to be in covenant relationship with this woman here and put my spin on it. I'm going to redefine what it means to walk with this God who created me and put my spin on it. That's what Adam is doing in the garden. And today, when we walk away from God's word, no matter what it is, that's what we're doing. We're trying to redefine something that we're not qualified to define in the first place. Only God can define what's right and what's wrong. How, how arrogant are we to think that we actually know what's good and what's, what's, what's bad? Our hearts are wicked. We're deceiving ourselves. That's what the Bible tells us. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. And who can know it? So if I can't know myself, I need to go to a source that's true. Otherwise, I'm going to be deceived. What is that source? It's the Word of God. And God in His grace and God in His goodness has given it to us for our good, for our protection. And yet we want to follow the example of Adam and redefine what God has already defined. And in so doing, we're stepping outside the firm foundation of the rock of God's word. And the result is what verse 49 says, great is the fall. If we want to have homes that are solid and homes that are protected and homes that are healthy and marriages that are vital and marriages that are life bringing, what do we do? We live life under and inside the parameters of what God has set. You get outside of that, you reap the whirlwind. Why is that? It's because it's dangerous. And also, maybe it's God's way to push us back in. Hey, get back in the parameters, right? We don't discipline our children because we hate them. We discipline them to teach them the lesson. Because we know if they go too far, they will fall off the cliff. But when they get outside that line a little bit, we want to, excuse the language, beat them back within the line. That's what God does for us in grace. And so from that gloomy day in Eden when everything changed, when they re rebelled against God, till today, mankind has struggled to build a house for himself that stands the test of time. Each individual inherently, all of us carry a rebellious nature, come down from Adam within our hearts. In our sin, we take over the role of the serpent there and we question God ourselves arrogantly thinking that we know, know best. And the reality, however, is this. Man's vision and understanding of the world is short-sighted. It's flawed and tainted by sin. And God alone is all-knowing. God is good. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And he knows all things. He's, think about this. God sees the end from the beginning. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring you. And yet he already knows what the end of your life's going to look like. He knows what's going to come if the Lord tarries. He knows what the generations after you're gone will look like. And we're still trying to figure out what we're going to do for lunch today. We need to trust him in his goodness. So he alone is able to offer the clear and healthy perspective on how we ought to live and build our lives. When an individual rejects God's word on a matter of life, what we're doing is we're doing something dangerous to our own detriment. It's weakening and eroding the foundations of a life that we're trying 
to build. And so Jesus here in these verses offers instruction of how we should build our lives under and on the foundation of the Word of God. Building it in such a way that the storms do not cause it to fall, do not cause it to erode. Instead, it stands. Job's a beautiful picture of this. Job exemplified this. Think about this. The Bible tells us in Job 1 and 2 that he is upright, righteous before God. In fact, the devil comes kind of strutting before the Lord, and he's basically acting like he's the Lord of the earth. And so God says, have you considered Job? Two times he says that. Have you considered my servant Job? Then he describes what his life is like, puts him up there on a pedestal and says, go after him, baby. And in all of that destruction, Job never sins. His loving wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? I would have said, why don't you curse God and die? (laughs) Faithful, loving wife. Thankfully, I'm not married to her. I'm married to this woman. She would have never said that to me. But that's the predicament we was in. Friends come, three different friends, then another guy comes, and for chapter after chapter after chapter, they berate him saying, surely, Job, there's something sinful in your life. And he's like, I've done nothing. I don't deserve this. I pity the day that I was born. I wish that I was never born. He was so miserable, and yet he was blameless and righteous before the Lord. And yet he gets to the end of all of that story, and he begins to realize, hey, There is areas in my life that needs to grow. Sure, I didn't cause this. Sure, I didn't deserve this. But that doesn't mean I'm blameless before the Lord. As a disciple of the Lord, I want to follow him. I want to walk in him. I want to grow in him. I want to keep my eyes on his word. I want to continue to conform my life and put put it inside the parameters he said set for him. And so he says this in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. He says to the Lord, after God has spoken to him, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's obedience, his coming, his hearing, and his doing resulted in God's blessing in his latter days. If you know the story, and we'll get to it in a couple days, but if you know the story of Job, such destruction on the front end, such heartache and hardship during the course of his friends not being very friendly, then he comes to his sense and as he repents before the Lord, we would look at it and say, what are you repenting of? But there's areas of growth. And in all of that, because he conformed his life to the parameters of God's word, the Bible tells us that God blessed him doubly. And I'm not here to give you a prosperity message. I just want to point out the fact that God is good and is gracious. And his latter days were better than his first days. Gave him a double portion of everything. You say, well, he didn't give him double kids. Well, that brings in the resurrection. We'll see those first ten in heaven. He gives them ten more. God was good to Job because Job was good to God. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to destruction. And if you want your life to be built upon a foundation that, it, that, that stands the test of time, build it on the firm foundation of God's <clears throat> word. How does that begin? It begins with you coming to Jesus, the one who comes, hears, and does. You see, there was a day in my life, 27 or so years ago, I heard the gospel, and I came to Jesus. And praise God, I've been coming to Jesus ever since then. But there has to be that moment in a person's life where they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I agree with everything you say in your word about my life, that I'm a sinner. 
I'm a sinner under the hands of an angry, justful, wrathful, holy God. And everything the Bible says about what I deserve, I deserve. I deserve hell. I deserve to snuggle up against the devil for the rest of eternity because that's the wickedness that's within my heart. But Jesus, I believe what you said in your word. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting faith. And so we come to Jesus in faith, repenting, turning from our sin, and turning to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you're becoming, you become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Starts there. This morning, if that's never been the story of your life, I want to invite you as we have a time of response to make that the new chapter in your life. That today you're saying yes to Jesus as a follower of him. Many of us in this room watching us online, we're, we're followers of Jesus. But many times we're walking at that guilty distance I mentioned so often. Why do I mention so often? Because it's so prevalent in our lives. We have a tendency to stray. We have a tendency to get off the, the road. I, I love Pilgrim's Progress and how uh, John Bunyan in that book talks about how easy it is to get off the course as we follow Jesus. We want to be brought back. And so this morning... What are the areas in your life that are not in conformance to the authority of God's word? What is the mindset that you have about certain topics and subjects that are out there? Are we allowing culture to influence the way we think? Now, I say all of that, what I said earlier about our culture and, and how we're imploding and eroding ourselves because of our uh, refusal to obey God's word. I say that so that we're establishing what we believe. I say that not to be angry and, and mean-spirited to those who are deceived by that. We want to, in love, go to them and teach them the truth. But you got to know the truth first. What are the areas in our life that we're saying this morning that God is putting his finger there and saying, you know what, that's not right. It's not right. Let's get back in the fold. Let's get back within the fencing of safety. I don't know what it is this morning, but I trust that the Holy Spirit is hopefully putting those areas in your mind. This morning, I would encourage you to say yes. So we're going to have a time of response. We're going to sing a song. If you need to push, <clears throat> excuse me, place your faith in Jesus this morning, I would invite you to come. You don't have to come, but I'd love to put you with somebody that can help walk you through the gospel this morning so you can say yes to Jesus. Maybe you want to pray at this altar, sw swing around in your seat, whatever it is, let's be obedient to God's word. Father, we thank you this morning for calling us to yourself. God, I thank you for that grace that you extend. And that I'm grateful that we've never sinned beyond the grace of God. We, we, we can never do that. The arms of Jesus are wide open and open to receive all sinners. Paul understood this clearly. He, he saw himself, viewed himself as the chief of all sinners. He's the man that was persecuting the church and condemning the church. And he's there holding the cloaks as men threw stones to kill Stephen. In Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 7. And yet, Lord, you drew him to faith in Christ and used him in a powerful way, literally to change history. And so this morning, no matter what sin we may be walking in, we serve a God who has open arms and receives us today. So God, help us to respond in faith, in repentance, and in truth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, 
please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.